Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. If you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn or click with me to uh, Mark chapter 7. Now this morning we're going to be looking at another one of the clashes between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And uh, if you're new with us, if you're a guest and you're thinking, wait, isn't Jesus a religious leader? That doesn't quite sound right. Um, What we've been seeing in this series through the Gospel of Mark is actually uh, that Jesus came to offer something that is completely different from uh, religion. And we're going to see that contrast on full display in our text today. Uh, And it all begins with a controversy over hand washing. I'm not kidding. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 7, we'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, again, those are the religious professionals of the day, verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So it all starts with a controversy over hand washing, and here's kind of what's going on. Um, If you weren't with us uh, several weeks ago when the religious leaders kind of attacked Jesus head on, they accused him of being demon-possessed, and Jesus' response kind of exposed them in front of everybody. And so that didn't go well for them. And so the religious leaders, they still don't like Jesus, but they're, they're smartening up, they're wisening up. They know we can't attack Jesus. He is sinless. He's going to expose us. He's smarter than us. He is righteous. He is holy. He is good. So they go after his disciples. Um, Because we've seen so far, the disciples are a lot like you and me. They are a mixed bag at best. And so the Pharisees, to attack Jesus, they go after his disciples. And they say, Jesus, um, why are your disciples eating with unwashed hands? How many of you are sympathetic with the Pharisees in this text? right? Like, I think uh, the last year has probably revealed that maybe we have a lot of Pharisees in our world. Like, some of you, you wouldn't just think, oh, that's gross. You, you wouldn't just watch that they wash their hands. You'd be there with a stopwatch. Like, no, go sing happy birthday again. Wash your hands again. But you have to remember, uh, this is an ancient context. Um, they did not know what you and I know about germs today. And so that's not the concern here. The Pharisees weren't thinking, you know, I don't think they used hot enough water. I don't think they had enough contact with the water to really clean the germs off of their hands. That's not their concern. That's not things they're aware about. What this is really a concern about um, is ceremonial cleanliness. Um, We saw this a few weeks back that um, as part of God's law, he had given the people of Israel um, these laws about um, ceremonial cleansing, about how to um, be washed, how to be clean, about things that make you defiled. Um, Because what we said uh, a couple weeks ago is that God knows things that we don't. God knows about germs, and so he wanted Israel to be clean and to flourish. Um, But more important than that, the whole purpose of the ceremonial system was Uh, to 
teach and to help Israel understand um, how sin separates us from God, how being separated from God separates us from life, and so how you and I, we all have this deep down need to be cleansed like a dirty garment, to be washed clean so that we can enter into the presence of God and have life again. That's the whole purpose of the ceremonial system. It's teaching this idea that sin separates us from God, sin separates us from life, and so we need to be cleansed by a coming Savior who can bring us into God's presence. And the Pharisees, they understood this purpose. Um, The Pharisees understood the purpose of the ceremonial um, system. And so what this conflict we're going to be looking at today is really about, it's not so much about germs, though as modern people, we might hear it that way. Um, What this conflict is really about is it's about how do we get our lives clean? Like, what do you do when you look at your life and you see something that you go, I don't like that? And what do you do when you find things uh, in your life that you go, that's got to change. I don't like that. It's causing great problems in my life and I want to be clean. How do you get clean? That's the question that this whole conflict is going to be about. Um, And you, you might not use the word uh, clean and unclean. Um, You might not use the word sinful and righteous. You might use words like broken and whole. These are synonyms in the Bible for the same thing. Um, Unclean would be broken. Clean would be whole. You might use more um, words that are popular in our vernacular today like just and unjust. When you see there's injustice in your life, brokenness in your life, how do you become a just kind of person um, that brings life into the world instead of into death? That's the essential question here. How do we get clean? Whatever word you want to put on it, that means this conflict, it's not just over germs and it's not just over religious laws 2,000 years ago. This conflict is about something relevant to your life and to my life because we all need to be clean. Amen? We all feel that need. And so what we're going to see in our text uh, is we're going to see two very different visions for how to get clean. Um, In the first one, we just saw it with the religious leaders. The the Pharisees, they kind of exemplify the religious answer. And and their answer is they make up rules. Um, Mark gives us this long parenthetical statement for people like you and me that didn't live in this culture that might not pick this up. He tells us in verses 3 and 4, oh, by the way, this whole thing about washing your hands, that's not actually in God's law. Um, That's something that the religious leaders, they made up. It's a human tradition. Um, And I want to talk about the difference between human tradition and God's law because human tradition isn't inherently bad. There can be some wisdom in things that we find, hey, this is helpful. This can line you up for life. But when you treat human tradition like God's law, you get into a lot of trouble. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. So let's, let's chat about God's law a little bit. Um, when God rescued the people of Israel from slavery, he brings them um, out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and at Mount Sinai, he makes a covenant with them, which is a promise. This is kind of like a wedding day between God and the people of Israel. And like any wedding you've ever seen, promises are exchanged, commitment is shared and spoken. And what God says to the people of Israel is, this is going to be, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be your God. Uh, You are going to be my people. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be faithful to you no matter how you drift from me. Uh, God kind of takes it upon himself to say this is going to be a one-way love, that I'm going to love you and uh, care for you and uh, be faithful to you, Um, even though I know you're going to be a uh, forgetful people that drift and are imperfect at best. And so at Mount Sinai, God makes them this promise. 
And what he says is, um, through being my people, through being in relationship with me, I'm going to restore you to the type of humans that you were made to be, and that you will join me in bringing uh, the harmony of Eden. Uh, The biblical word is shalom, this idea of peace and flourishing um, that I created the world for. Through you, I'm going to bring the shalom of Eden back to the world. That's the promise that God makes to the people of Israel um, on the other side of the Red Sea after rescuing them from slavery. And it's at that point he gives them the law. And it's so important that you understand the order there because I think sometimes we think God gives us the law so that we could obey the rules well enough for God to love us. But in the story of the Bible, God redeems and rescues us in spite of our unloveliness and draws near in relationship to us, makes promises to us, buys our redemption, and then he gives us the law. And the reason he gives Israel the law is to lead them into this new life, to lead them in how they can walk in relationship with God, to uh, lead them in becoming the kind of people um, that can enjoy the shalom of Eden and bring it back to the world. That's the purpose of God's law. It's not to earn God's love. It's because they have already have God's love. He already loves them. He gives them his law to say, this is how to walk in this new life that I have bought you into, that I have brought you into. Um, In the Old Testament law, has 613 commands. Um, So if you want to go this week and have a real fun Bible study, go try to count every single one. There's 613 in there. Um, There are a lot of commands. It is very detailed from the kind of clothes that you should wear um, to the food that you should eat to um, big kind of sweeping ethics. Like don't kill anybody. Your society is going to be better if you're not killing each other. Um, Don't commit adultery. It'll just be better if you're not taking each other's spouses. Like there's some basic ethics in there, but then there's some very particular ethics. And the particular ones are uh, like we talked about. It's that ceremonial system teaching them of the importance of needing to be cleansed from sin. And out of the 613 laws, here's what I want to point out to you. There's not one law about washing your hands before you eat. There's not one law about washing your hands before you eat. And, And if you know the story of the Old Testament... Um, If you've been around church any amount of time, uh, you may know that God rescues the people of Israel from slavery. He makes a covenant with them. He gives them his law. It's meant to lead them into life. The shalom of Eden is coming back to earth again. But then humans enter the picture and mess everything up. Um, That the people of Israel, much like you and me, uh, fail to walk in relationship with God, that they prefer to be their own gods and to give themselves to lesser gods and lesser deities to be their source of life. And so they break God's law, they break their covenant with God, and and all this leads to destruction. Uh, You eventually get to the point in the biblical story that after rejecting God and rejecting God and rejecting God, God says, fine, I'm going to allow you to feel the weight of your actions. I'm going to allow these consequences that you have brought through your own sin to come back on your own life, to bring you to the end of yourself so you can see what you've done. And so God's people get um, invaded by foreign armies. They get dragged away from their homeland into exile. And there are entire books of the Bible about this. The book of Lamentations is really lamenting how the people failed to walk in relationship with God. Uh, Many of the prophets are writing saying, God, we haven't been the covenant partners we're supposed to be. We have not walked in relationship with you. And we see now that our lives are dirty. We see that our lives are unclean. We see that our lives are full of injustice. And we don't want to be anymore, but we're broken, God. This is so much of the story of the Old Testament. The people of God crying out, we want to be clean. We're not. We need help. We are broken. And 
into that space, the Pharisees came along, and they said, you know what the problem was? God only gave us 613 commands. Some of you are bent this way. There's two types of people, rule followers and rule breakers. Some of you are like, yeah, 613, that's not that many. I could have come up with at least eight or 900. That's kind of the Pharisees' attitude is they said, things went bad. We got unclean because God did not give us laws for every single second of every single day. He didn't tell us what to do with our hands before we eat. And so the Pharisees come in and they pile on a bunch of rules and traditions on top of the law that God gave them at Sinai. So now you have God's law, and now you have all the human tradition. And what the Pharisees say is if you follow God's law, plus our human tradition that God, um, you know, he, maybe he just left out, but thank God for us, we have them now for you. If you can follow these two things, then your life will be clean. Then you can bring the shalom of Eden back to the world. And so these Pharisees, they add to God's law, this is the, the answer of religion, that where you see brokenness in your life, where you long for wholeness, the answer is more rules. Um, the answer is, uh, um, the word we would use today, I think, is behavior modification, um, if I can say it that way. Um, the, in the religious mindset, uh, you are clean, you are inherently good, um, all the bad stuff is out there. And so if you can just uh, build enough rules to keep yourself from all that bad stuff up out there, if you can just separate yourself out from that, then you will be a clean person. And so the Pharisees, they come up with all of these rules. And again, I would say we would call it today behavior modification. That's the answer of religion, to say we are unclean, the way we become clean is by building all these rules to separate us from all the dirtiness out there. And if you can follow the rules well enough, then you will be clean. And um, even if you're not a religious person, some of you might say, well, that's the problem with religion. But I would submit to you um, that even if you're not a religious person, um, this is a mindset that you are prone to. Uh, this is the mindset that is under every single self-help book that's ever been written. This idea that um, there is uh, something broken in your life and you want wholeness, so you need to stop doing that and start doing that. And here are several rules. You need to stop doing these things. You need to start doing these things to move into a new life. This is the idea of behavior modification. And so whether it comes in the form of religious instruction for you, I need to have my quiet time, or whether it comes in the form of something that feels less religious, it's all a matter of behavior modification. Um, let me explain it this way. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I was serving as a youth pastor, and um, this was a bad time to be serving as a youth pastor. I don't know if any of you have had something like this happen in your life. Uh, I'm at an age where my metabolism is starting to slow down, uh, but my job dictated uh, pizza, donuts, hot dogs, right? Like that you're just eating like a teenager when you're no longer a teenager. And so because, you know, I love the Lord and love these students, I'm eating lots of pizza, I'm entering into their world, my metabolism is slowing down. And so I recognize, like, okay, um, there's more of me than there used to be. Um, something's got to change. I don't like this. I don't feel good. Uh, there's something that's not right. And so I did what um, a lot of you have probably done in your life, is I went on a diet, Right? And uh, I think a diet is a great example of behavior modification, that you say, I can have this many calories in, um, and if I only take in that many calories and I burn this many, then I'll lose weight, and then I'll feel much better about myself. And I'm not dogging on a diet. If you're in here and you're on a diet, if you're doing that in a healthy way, praise the Lord. What I'm saying is um, your vision of life should not be uh, that if I can attain these rules, then I'll be free. 
Um, and, and that's certainly what diets can a lot of times become. I need to do these things. I need to do them well enough. And um, if I could do them well enough, then I will just be free. Now, Jesus, he has some problems with this. Um, let's look at the response of Jesus. So the religious leaders, they say, we're unclean. We're going to make up all these rules. Jesus isn't having it. Verse 6, he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So Jesus, I mean, he absolutely blasts these guys. Like, do you see how it ends there? He's like, here's all the problems with that. And you do many more things like this. Jesus, um, he's not happy with these religious guys. They've picked a fight with his disciples. And in so doing, they've revealed a religious mindset that's killing everybody. And so Jesus tells them, hey, there's some problems with what you just said. First of all, um, it forces this religious mindset that says, if I can just obey all of the rules, then I will be clean. Um, That will force you to pretend. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you hypocrites. This is problem number one. The word hypocrite uh, in the original language, it would refer to a play actor. So if you think of an old Greek play, the word hypocrite's talking about someone on stage acting. It wasn't a negative term initially, um, but after seeing that you kind of put on a mask to play one thing on the stage and then you come off and you're a different person, um, this word began to be used in Greek culture to describe someone who is a pretender who pretends to be one thing but really is another thing. And so it became a very negative word. It's certainly an insult in this context. And what Jesus says is, you guys are hypocrites. You guys are pretending to be one thing on the outside when you're really something else on the inside. And this is the first problem with the religious mindset, is it causes you to pretend to be more than you are. Because go back to the dieting analogy. Um, If you've ever been on a diet, uh, you've probably found, you hit the point where you're like, I can't eat any more kale and lettuce and avocado. I can't eat anything in the green color palette anymore. And and so (laughs) then you end up in the McDonald's drive-thru with a couple of burgers, fries, and a shake, and you eat it in your car, and you throw it away before anyone else can see because you're on a diet. This is the problem with religion, is uh, no one can keep the rules long enough. And some of you may be able to hang on, kind of white-knuckling it longer than the rest of us. Well, good for you. You might make it a little bit longer before you hit the end of yourself. But the point is, if you live life trying to be clean by obeying the rules, you won't be able to do it. And so you're going to have to pretend to be something that you're not. You're going to have to put on Instagram like, sweet kale salad tonight and hide what you had for lunch because no one can do this no one can obey the rules well enough and so jesus says um 
If that's your idea that uncleanliness, it's out there and you just need to build the rules to keep you away from the uncleanliness, then you're going to have to build um, this facade of who you really are. In the real you, it can't be known because the real you won't be able to live up to your rules long enough. You will become a hypocrite. You will, religion will make you become the very thing that you hate. And I think it's so interesting seeing how often in culture people that rail against certain sins and proclivities and injustices, it comes out, oh, this is what they're hiding in their secret life. The very thing that they are railing against is the thing that they are struggling with. That's what religion does. It makes you pretend. It makes you into a hypocrite. Um, But then Jesus gives a second problem, and this comes up with the whole Corbin issue. Um, What Corbin is, is it was a tradition that the rabbis developed um, based on uh, something in Leviticus 27 verse 28. So if you want to look it up this week, Leviticus 27 verse 28, um, it is a command that essentially says um, we need to approach God um, with seriousness. We need to recognize that as we sang earlier that God is holy. We can't be flippant with God. Uh, We can't just treat him like one of our buddies that doesn't deserve our worship and our respect. Uh, In Leviticus 27, the issue is if you say you're going to dedicate something to God, if you say this belongs to God, I want to offer God this gift of praise, then you need to follow through with it. You can't treat God cheaply and just say one thing and do another because God is holy. He is the living God in heaven and he is not to be mocked. And, and I will just say this, um, around here we say this amongst our staff a lot, that we want to take God seriously and ourselves not too seriously. Um, I think our culture tends to get this backwards, where if you've been on social media, I don't know if you know this, a lot of people take themselves way too seriously. They're like, I'm a human, the world revolves around me, how dare you insult me or make fun of me? But then we treat God very not seriously. We say things like, oh, if he were just here today, he'd be smarter, he'd amend some of the things in the scriptures. You know, I'm 33, I certainly know more than the almighty God. He needs to bow his will to mine. We've got it totally backwards. In the scripture, God says, hey, I am holy, I am the living God, you can't just treat me cheaply. That's the whole idea of the sacrificial system is that sin is serious, God is holy. Um, But if you understand that rightly, it allows you to just be human. It allows you to not treat yourself more seriously than you need to treat yourself. It allows you to laugh and have a good time and to relax because, catch this, the Bible says you're not the center of the universe. And, And as you lean into this idea that I'm not the center, that he is, that's where life is. But now, okay, I'm totally off script. Leviticus 27. He says, uh, if you're going to devote something to me, then take it seriously. Follow through on it. I'm the center of the universe. You can't just treat me um, like I'm nothing. That's not good for your soul. That dishonors me. And so that's what Leviticus 27 is about. It's about treating God with reverence and holiness and seriousness that is due him as creator. And so what the rabbis did was, remember, 613 commandments, that's not enough that's junior varsity. So they added on to it and they built out what became basically a tax loophole known as Corbin. Now Corbin, and again, I love Mark. He's writing for Gentiles like you and me. He's like, you don't know what Corbin is? He puts in parentheses. Um, That means that is given to God. That's what the word literally means, dedicated to God. This tax hole of Corbin was basically a way that you as a person could um, dedicate some of your property, some of your wealth to God. To say this is something that out of gratefulness uh, to God for how he has saved us and redeemed us and drawn near to us, I want to give this to God. I want to give him the sacrifice of praise. I, I love him so much. 
Um, and so it started off as a good thing. Uh, it was a way that you could dedicate part of your wealth to God. So you could say, um, this herd of sheep, you could just come home from the temple so moved by the love of God to say, I want to offer him this herd of sheep because Jesus will say this elsewhere, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And whatever you truly love, you are going to be um, sacrificing and giving to, not as a, um, like this is hard to do, but it's something that you love to do. And so if you come home from temple and you're just so moved by the love of God and you want to say, this herd of sheep, God, they're dedicated to you. I love you so much. I just want to declare my love for you. You don't go to Tiffany's to declare your love for God. Uh, You would do Corbin. You would say, I declare these sheep are yours. It sounds spiritual, right? Uh, And maybe it started that way. I don't know. But here's what began to happen. Um, What this means at a practical level is if you declared something Corbin, um, then if your neighbor needed that sheep, they weren't allowed to ask to borrow it because it's dedicated to God. Um, If your parents got sick or they got older and needed to move in with you, well, I guess they'd already be living with you. This is the Middle East. But take it into modern context. If your parents need some help or if your kids are off at college and they need some help, you, you couldn't sell the sheep and help them out because, well, it's Corbin. It's dedicated to God. And remember Leviticus 27, you need to follow through on your commitments to the Lord because he is holy He is not to be trifled with. And so what began to happen, oh, oh, because here's the really wicked thing about this. Um, When you declared something Corbin, you didn't actually give it to the temple until you died. I think this is really convenient. This is why some commentators will call it a tax loophole. Because basically, if you declared something as Corbin, you could keep using those sheep, but your neighbor that needed them, nope, sorry, it's dedicated to the Lord. I'd want to help you out, but I just love Jesus so much. I just, I I can't be troubled. I'm sorry. Um, If someone said, hey, could you help me out? Like, I see that herd of sheep. Maybe you could sell that and help me out. Like, man, I'd love to help you out, brother. But, you know, just the Lord and I'm just, mm, I, I can't help you. And so this is what Corbin began to be, is you would declare things dedicated to God so you wouldn't have to share your resources and help others, and you could just keep it for yourself. And then when you die and you're not here to collect it anymore, you know the old statement is there's no hearses uh, with a U-Haul behind them going to glory. Well, then it would get distributed. And so this began to be a loophole. Jesus calls them out on it. If you're like, why do you say it became a loophole? Because Jesus calls them out on it. He says, when your parents come to you, and they have need, you say to them, Corbin, you say that I have um, dedicated this to the Lord. And so I'm sorry, mom and dad, can't help you. Which, um, remember, Corbin's not in God's law, but you know what made it into the Ten Commandments? Any parents in the room? Honor your mother and father. Mom goes there. There it is. Thank you. Honor your father and mother. Honor your mother and father. This, is, this made the list of the top ten. And here the Pharisees are, ignoring what God actually said, building their own rules, trying to live according to their rules. And what Jesus says, here's the point, here's the second problem, is when you say building enough rules will make me clean, it not only forces you to pretend, but even if you can somehow succeed at obeying your rules, it simply just rearranges your flesh. Um, They've traded one sin, irreverence, for another sin, greed. That's not really much of a win. I don't know about you. I'm like, I don't know that trading irreverence for greed, I don't know if God's up in heaven going like, way to go, guys. Like, that was a a sweet movement there. And in fact, I know God's not up in heaven going that because God is in the flesh. Jesus is there saying, guys, this is wicked what you're doing here. The second problem with religion is that even if you can obey all the rules, at best, you are simply 
rearranging your flesh. You were trading one sin for another. And so uh, take it back to the dieting analogy. Some of you, you have more self-control than me. Way to go, okay? You might be able to eat the kale salads. You might be like Karen and enjoy it, which I think is unfair. Uh, You might be able to do that. But if you do that, if that is the main motivation of your life, again, I'm not saying diets are wrong, but if this is the central motivation of your life of how to get clean, then you will trade one sin for another. For example, you will trade gluttony, eating too much, for pride, looking down on those who can't fulfill their diets like you. See, this is another problem with religion. And and then Jesus gives us a third problem, and I think this really gets to the heart of the matter. What he says is um, building up these rules for yourselves and, and trying to live by those to make you clean. It's not only made you hypocrites. It's not only simply rearranged your flesh, trading one sin for another. Um, but it's, it's put your heart far from God. He says this in verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. Isaiah talked about that there would be a type of person who would build up rules and try to get clean by their own religious performance. And what Isaiah said, Jesus said it's very accurate, which um, we, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. So they're still figuring it out. I just laugh at this. Because by saying, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? It's Jesus' spirit that filled Isaiah. So Jesus is kind of going like, hey, I nailed this one. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is maybe the greatest problem of religion, is it keeps us busy with religious activity on the outside. We look spiritual, we look busy, we look like we're sacrificing so much for the Lord, but on the inside, our heart is far from God. And that's a dangerous place to be when the outside looks godly and busy, but the inside is far from God. It's a really dangerous place to be. And Jesus came to draw near to his people, to draw near in relationship with his people. And that's why he can't stand for the answer of religion. Because he doesn't want your heart to be far from him. He wants your heart to be near to him. He wants to bring you life and wholeness and a relationship with himself. And so Jesus gives us now another answer. Um, I'll just put my cards on the table. A better answer than the answer of religion. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person... From the outside, it can't defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. We'll come back to that. Um, And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Can you think of any problems in our world today that Jesus didn't just name there? There have been innumerable self-help books written on each of these topics. And Jesus says all of these things, all of these evils, verse 23, all of these evil things come from within. And they defile person. Jesus is saying all the evil, all the uncleanliness in the world that you're worried about, it has a common source. 
It comes from within. It comes from the heart. So according to Jesus, the problem isn't out there that you need to separate yourself from it. The problem is in here. It's in your heart. He uses the word heart three times in this discussion. And um, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of heart. In our culture, we kind of use the heart to talk about our emotions. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it includes your emotions, but it's so much more than that. Some of you are very technical. You think of the thing beating in your chest. Again, the the Bible will at times talk about the heart that way, but it certainly includes more than that. In the Bible, uh, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about your inner life. Um, It includes your feelings, but it includes more than that. It includes your desires. It includes your motivations. It includes your will. Um, One pastor, Tim Keller, says uh, the heart is the control center of your life. So for those of you that are more kind of digital oriented, thinking about that way, it's the control center out of which everything flows. For those of you that are more artsy, the book of Proverbs describes the heart is um, a wellspring from which the spring of your life flows. And so it is the source from which everything in your life comes. Essentially, maybe the best way you can think of the heart is Jesus is saying the real you, the inner you, not the you that you pretend out there, the truest you. That's where the problem is, according to Jesus. And and if that's the case, then that means the problem is worse than we think, right? Because it's one thing to say the problem is out there and I need to build walls to keep me from that. But what Jesus says is, no, the problem's not out there. It's fundamentally in here. The, the truest part of you, the innermost part of you is broken. And that means the problem is worse than we think. Um, but I, I was thinking about it this week. I think that that means that there's got to be hope for us. Because if you've ever felt stuck trying to get clean, Jesus is saying, here's why. You haven't got to the heart of the problem. You haven't got to the root of the issue. The issue's not out there. It's in here. There's something new that Jesus wants to say. And let me just say this. Jesus not only critiques the mindset of religion that says the problem is out there and far away from you and you need to build up the rules, but Jesus also critiques kind of the modern mindset of our culture today. Um, Our culture today says, no, the problem of why you feel unclean is because there's a sense of absolute morality and you just got to get rid of that. That's old school. That's patriarchal. That's outdated thinking. There's no right or wrong. You follow your heart. You do you. Have you heard this? What Jesus says is if you follow your heart, that will lead you to sexual immorality It will lead you to abuse and use others. It will lead you to lie and be deceptive. It will lead you to pride and treating others as if they exist to serve you. Does this sound like our world today? It's easy to say, does this sound like our world? Does this sound like your struggles in life? See, what Jesus says is the problem, it's not out there, it's in here. And the answer can't be just to cast off all the rules, because if you cast off all the rules, then you're just left with what's in here. And then, now you're not a hypocrite, you're just evil, and everyone knows it, and you celebrate your evil, and the world descends into chaos. But Jesus offers us a solution that is better than the solution of religion and self-help. He offers us a solution that's better than kind of our modern kind of gobbledygook of follow your heart. Jesus He offers a solution that gets beyond behavior modification to the root of the problem. 
He says, out of your heart flow all of these things. And so if you want to get the sexual immorality out of your life, if you want to get the lies and the deceit and the misuse and abuse out of your life, if you want to get the greed out of your life, then you've got to address your heart because you're just building up rules, you're going to be picking things out downstream, and you'll trade one of the things on that list for another. So you might go from struggling with sexual immorality to, you don't go to that website anymore. Awesome. Praise God. But now you're prideful about other people that go there. You've simply rearranged your flesh. But Jesus says, if you want to experience true cleanliness, if you want to experience true healing, you've got to get upstream to the root of the problem. And if your heart can change, then out of a new heart will flow a new life. And so that's Jesus' solution. Religion says behavior modification is the answer. Jesus says no, heart modification is. You, what you and I ultimately need is a new heart because true change happens in here and then it flows out there. That's the only way true and lasting change can take place. And this, by the way, is something that the prophets had been saying for centuries before Jesus arrived. Um, Let me just read you one particularly famous and I think relevant example. This comes from the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. He says this. I'll pick it up in verse 24. God's talking to his people that are in exile. They are broken. They are unclean. They are lamenting the injustice and the evil in their world. And in verse 24, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. God says, You can't fix you, so I'm going to rise up and do something to fix you. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God's saying, you can't cleanse yourself. You've proven that already. So I'm going to rise up and do something to cleanse you. This is language from the sacrificial system, just like Pastor Phil was talking about earlier, where a lamb would be shed, blood would be shed, and then they would sprinkle that on you to say you are clean. You'd be sprinkled with clean water to say you are clean from that sin. What God says is there's coming a day where I'm going to rise up and do what the lamb and the water was always pointing to. It was always a shadow. Someday I'm going to rise up and I'm going to bring you back from exile. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. It's going to fix the idle problem in your life, verse 26, and I will give you a new what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put in you, and I'll remove that heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all of your uncleanliness. See, Jesus isn't the first to say this. So the Bible has been saying this on repeat that you can't cleanse you. God has to cleanse you. And that means the problem is worse than you thought. You can't fix yourself, but the Bible has good news that God is gracious and he loves to make clean sinners who admit, I can't cleanse myself. And so Jesus, he, he, he grabs onto this idea and he said, just like Ezekiel said, God's going to have to cleanse us and give us a new heart and out of that new heart will come the ability to live a new and clean life. So I'm telling you, the real problem is your heart and what you need is a heart modification. And so the question that we're meant to ask after Mark chapter 7 is, how do we get a new heart? How how do we get a new heart if that's what we need? Like, I can't just make a new heart happen. And you know, it's funny. I don't know if it's funny. Mark doesn't tell us in Mark chapter 7. 
Um, Mark wants to tell us some other things about Jesus. He wants to tell us some other things about what Jesus has done. We're still in the middle of the story. But Mark does leave us one big clue. Uh, He leaves us one big clue to tell us about where we're going to get a new heart. Because lest you be discouraged after hearing, hey, the reason you're unclean is you need a new heart. Have a great week. And, you know, in a few months, we'll get to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I'll tell you your answer then. Mark gives us our third parenthetical statement. He says, thus, he declared all foods clean. Um, I don't know if that sounded random to you when we were going through it. Um, I was thinking about it this week. I'm like, isn't Jesus doing what he just accused the Pharisees of doing? Because in the Old Testament, part of those 613 laws were you can eat this, you can't eat that, you can eat this, you can't eat that. And what Mark just said is Jesus' statement here just said, hey, the whole menu is now on the table. And so um, you weren't allowed to eat bacon before, but I'm going to declare all foods clean. Bacon's on the table. And every Baptist said amen. Thank you, Lord. Um, And so... Is Jesus, though, is he doing what he just accused the Pharisees of doing, of laying aside God's law and doing what he wants anyway? And the answer is yes and no. Um, Yes, in the sense that, yeah, God did tell his people, don't eat pork, you're to be a holy people. Um, But no, because the purity laws that God gave Israel, they were never meant to be permanent. They were always meant to point to something greater. And what Jesus is doing here is recognizing that something is greater Uh, then the purity laws is here. That the purpose of those laws is now being fulfilled and completed in his life and coming death and resurrection. Um, Listen to how New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it. He's he's smarter than me. This will make sense, okay? He says, Jesus' basic point is that the purity laws, including food laws, don't actually touch the real human problem. And that that is what the kingdom of God addresses. But behind this is the strong sense already here in Jesus and hammered out in the early church that what happened in Jesus brought the old scriptures, the whole covenant with Israel, to a new completion, to a new fulfillment. The scriptures spoke of purity and set up codes as signposts to it. Jesus was offering the reality. When you arrive at the destination, you don't need the signposts anymore, not because they were worthless, but precisely because they were correct all along. See, what N.T. Wright is saying, what I would submit to you, is by saying Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark is reminding us of where this whole gospel is going, that Jesus came to usher in a new era of salvation, that the shadows of the food laws, the substance is now here, and the person and work of Jesus. And by making all foods clean, Jesus is announcing everything that God has promised, everything you've been hoping for, the rescue that you've been longing for, it is here. I have come to fulfill Ezekiel 36. And that's, spoiler alert, that's where the gospel of Mark is going, that on the cross, Jesus will die as the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that his blood would be sprinkled upon our consciences, um, that is a great high priest, he sprinkles us with clean water from the cross. You have blood and water flow. That's not random. That's everything the Old Testament pointed to is fulfilled in Jesus. And so what Mark is telling us with this simple parenthetical statement, I think, is don't forget, Jesus makes you clean. He's writing this after the death and resurrection of Jesus to the early church. He's saying, don't forget what Christ has done for you. Yes, you need a new heart, but you've been given that new heart in Christ 
because he has made you clean. And I think this is maybe one of the most undertaught areas of the Christian life. That if you've trusted in the work of Jesus, he has not only sprinkled you to cleanse you from your sin, past, present, future, so that you stand before God with the perfect righteousness, cleansed holiness of Jesus in spite of your struggle this week, but that he has also put his spirit in you and given you a new heart that has new desires to live a new life. Listen to how the New Testament will say this later on. This is in Titus chapter 3, and I just want to read this because I don't think we think enough about this. Titus 3 verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, meaning we were not able to fulfill the law, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so um, I read that because the New Testament tells us we need to insist on these things. That Jesus has not only cleansed us from our sins so that we go to heaven someday, though that is gloriously true, he has also given us a new heart so that we can walk with God and experience life in his kingdom right now. And so here's the invitation of Jesus in this text. He is saying, I did not come to give you more information today about how to build rules to try to make yourself clean. I did not give you this list in verse 23 so you could identify all the things you're supposed to take out of your life and build rules to try to fix yourself so that you can turn into a hypocrite, rearrange your flesh, and have your heart still be far from me. What Jesus is saying is I came to do what you could not, and that is make you clean. And so some of you need to stop pretending today and to say, okay, Jesus, you make me clean. I don't have to pretend that I'm perfect on the outside. I can just breathe and let you be the Savior and me be the saint that's saved by your blood. And, and, and then he says, I, I came not only to save you, but to make you clean from the inside out. I didn't come to help you tweak the external of your life. I came to give you a new heart and out of that heart to lead you day by day, moment by moment into the newness of life. Jesus's invitation to you and to me who would trust in him this morning is I'll give you renewed desires and teach you how to live in that moment by moment, day by day. And this, by the way, is how Christianity is totally different from religion. Religion says your desires are bad. That's the problem. They're icky and gross. You need to build up all these walls um, and try to achieve and become something that you're not. Jesus says, no, desire is not the problem. This is what C.S. Lewis meant when he said, um, our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. Jesus says, I'm going to give you greater desires than these things in verse 23 that come out of the human heart. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit that has deeper desires, that has deeper longings. And the way that you become clean is by trusting in me and leaning into this new heart I've given you moment by moment. And so the Christian life isn't one of repressing desire, but it's simply letting go of lesser desires in order to take hold of the greater ones that Jesus has given us. And I say that's undertaught because I think that is such an underestimated aspect of the Christian life. That the Christian life is one where we, um, moment by moment, let go of the memory of sin in our flesh 
and grab hold of this new life and these new desires that Jesus has given us and follow us along that path. And so I simply want to leave you with that invitation this morning. That Jesus has made you clean if you've trusted in him. If you haven't, today can be the day that he can make you clean. And for those that have been made clean, he has given you a new heart. And so the question is, will you lean into that new heart? Will you stop pretending to be more than you are? Like, what if we were a church that when we were struggling, instead of when someone says, how are you doing, saying, great, brother, could say, like, not well. I'm, I'm hurting, I'm bleeding over here. I don't understand the things that I do. Because the gospel is what enables us to be a place that doesn't have to pretend anymore. What if we could be a church that when we were struggling, instead of trying to white knuckle our way through and say, I know I'm not supposed to do that, that gets to the heart of the matter, that says, man, what am I desiring here? What's going on in my heart? Why am I doing these things? What if we were a church that got to the heart of the matter and began to lean into the new heart that Jesus has given us? What would this community look like? What would our community around us say about this place? See, I'll tell you this, to to do that will require us to draw near to God, because until this body goes in the ground, we carry the old effects of our old broken sinful heart in the body until it goes into the ground, but we've been given a new heart by Jesus. And so it won't be automatic. It will require us to draw near to God in relationship, in conversation, to say, God, why am I doing these things? What desire is it that's driving these things? And what greater desire have you given me that I can live for in your power? This whole thing will require us to draw near to God. And I think that's the point. Because Jesus didn't come to give us tips on how to clean up our lives. He came to save us because we couldn't clean up our lives. He came to draw near in relationship to us. And that relationship is what makes us new people. And so we're going to spend some time doing that. We're going to draw near to God right now. Um, Let me pray for us. And then we'll draw near to God through communion and singing. Father, I thank you. um, That your response to our sin is not to withdraw from us, but to move toward us. Um, I thank you that you sent your son to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And um, Lord, I I ask right now that you would, um, we're all so prone to the mindset of religion. Would you free us a little bit more from that this morning? Uh, Please don't let us be like the Pharisees who were content with rigid rules instead of a relationship with you. Would you help us to be tired of the, relig- the rigid rules this morning and to draw near in faith to a relationship with you that makes us clean and that makes us new kinds of people? Would you help us to lean into the heart, new heart you've given us? Would you help us to believe that we haven't out your love this week, but that there is fresh grace available to us, that you've given us a new heart and we need only draw near to you to realize what you've put in us. Would you help us to approach you in faith this morning? I ask that you would pour out your spirit and help us do that. In your beautiful name we pray.